Welcome to The Backdrop Untold Stories in Golf. I'm your host and co-founder of New Club Golf Society, Matt Considine. Today, our guest is five-time PGA Tour winner Mark Wilson. Mark and I discuss his transition from pro-life to commentator life, working now for PGA Tour Live and PGA Tour Radio. He also shares some of the most open and honest insight I've heard on what it takes to win multiple times at golf's highest level. As Mark knows well, before you win on the PGA Tour, you got to get to the PGA Tour. And the path to the PGA Tour is running through Glenview, Illinois, May 27th through 30th, as the Glen Club welcomes golf's future stars for the Evans Scholars Invitational. General admission to this Corn Ferry Tour event is complimentary, courtesy Serve Pro of Glenview. Fans looking for an upgraded experience can purchase tickets to the Hangar, a premium spectator venue with food and drink included. For more information, visit esinvitational.com. All proceeds from this event will support Evan Scholars and the foundation's mission of providing full tuition and housing scholarships to deserving youth caddies. The Evan Scholars Invitational is also the official partner of this year's Hangout, our Chicago chapter's first local event of the year, and we hope to see everyone there. It's May 22nd at Canal Shores in Evanston. Now, without further ado, on to the show with PGA Tour winner Mark Wilson. Mark Wilson, welcome to The Bag Drop. Man, so good to be with you. I don't know what direction you're going to take this, but we're going to have a blast with it. We'll, we'll go north, south, east, west, all over the place. Good. Um, so we find you today uh, sitting at home in Elmhurst? Exactly, yeah. Elmhurst has been my home for 15 years. Uh, moved from the city. I grew up in Wisconsin, uh, but then met a girl uh, from Northbrook. And uh, we hit off, and uh, a couple years after meeting we got married and, and lived in the city for a couple of years and then said we want a little more space <laughs> at the time we were traveling pga tour and you know, we'd come back into chicago and we just hibernate in our condo i mean we might go to the east bank club for uh, for a workout that was about a block from our condo but other than that we're like we're not using the city for what we use it for so we decided to go out to the burbs and then soon after started a family now i have three boys and, and uh elmer's just been just a, a great spot I, uh, many, many of our members can relate to that exact situation where you're running out of room in the city, uh, and kids, and I'm, I'm definitely in that bucket. Uh, Elmhurst seems like a wonderful area. You guys got a lot of, uh, a great schools, a lot of great golf courses. How long have you guys been out there? We've been out there. Yeah. 15 years. And, uh, Baldur national brought me on right away when I got here, Bruce Patterson there. And now Rodney Ray is the director of golf. They've welcomed me to say, Hey, come out play and practice when you want. Uh, they've pretty much treated me as a member uh, without being a member. It's been just incredible place uh, to play and practice. Uh, Cause then when I went on, on tour, I seldom found a golf course more difficult than Butler national, which was a good thing. And uh, recently, cause my wife got more into the game. She played in high school, uh, but then really wanted to start playing again. Uh, we joined river forest country club in Elmhurst, which is just a gem been around for almost a hundred years through the trees and we just just love the feel of River Forest Country Club as well. So I got kind of both things. I got that country club and then I've got the, the Butler National that can just uh, really humble me pretty quick. I was, uh, I was curious your opinion. What makes Butler so hard? It's subtlety, no doubt about it. it. When you think about the golf course, there's only one hole that has 
uh, a tier on the green, number five, the par three. Other than that, there's just really gradual slopes, sometimes front to back, which is really confusing, uh, but they're just very subtle. So I, I can't really remember too many times when I've just rolled the tables out there and made every, everything I was looking at in terms of putting. Uh, it has those intimidating holes, no question about it, from eight through 12, especially eight, one of my favorite holes in the world, uh, that part three where you've got the creek down the right, you've got trees overhanging on the left. I've been left of that green way too many times, bailing out from, from the water down the right. And, uh, uh, but then it's just kind of got that subtlety to it where it's just right in front of you. Like, Oh, this doesn't look that difficult. And, and then, you know, you walk away and you're like a player like for myself who, you know, usually he's making four or five birdies around on any golf course. I walk away and go, Hey, I feel like I played pretty good. And you look at the scorecard, like I made one birdie today, <laughs> you know, 74 strokes later. And you're like, am I really ready to go out there and play on tour? And, and lo and behold, my scores would be of course better out uh, on tour. But I think it's that subtlety that really lulls you to sleep at Butler national. Is, is there a hole in particular out there that you think would stack up against the hardest holes on the PGA tour? Uh, boy, that's a, that's a really good question. I would put number eight right there. Uh, that par three, one of the most difficult par threes, I'm sure. Uh, especially if we played all the way back at that 210, 220 yard range pace of play nightmare though. I will say, uh, <laughs> you know, guys coming off the par five, seven, and then seeing two groups stacked up on the tee. But uh, 10 would also stack up uh, number nine right there, too, with that tee shot, seeing guys uh, uh, trying to trying to weave it through the trees. Um, so I, I would probably go with eight and 10 would be would be the two. Uh, of course, 18 is a great finishing hole as well and, and a lot of drama there. But uh, I'd, I'd put eight and 10 up there at the top of the list. It'd be it'd be neat to see the the world's best return to there because I was I, I kind of missed that wave. I think the Western Open stopped playing there, what, in the early 90s, maybe. So I didn't get to, to witness it myself, but I look at some of the scores that were posted and I say, man, yeah, this, this isn't hard just for me. It's also hard for the best. It is. I, I actually, um, with my connection with the PGA tour, I reached out to the guys at PGA tour entertainment and said, Hey, can you get me some old footage? And, and I shared it with the guys at Butler and it was fun to watch, you know, Greg Norman coming down the stretch and Mark McCumber and all those guys playing at Butler national. And, and, you know, the trees were a little smaller, uh, when you watch it back in the eighties than they are now, but, uh, it was, it was cool to reminisce and, and look at the golf course back then. And it was certainly revered as one of the tops. Uh, and one, one year I'll never forget too. This is when I was Wisconsin resident at the time growing up was how they played the adjacent Oak Brook golf club for nine holes because of the flood that came through there. And the PGA tour is trying to figure out what can we do? And they're like, well, we got nine holes over here on the, the golf course. that's pretty much on the same property. And then we, so we can play the back nine of that. And we can play nine holes at Butler and, and see if we can make this work. And, and they did. And what a, what a neat a thing in history is because I've practiced plenty at Oak Brook Golf Club, too. They basically share the range uh, right there between the, the golf courses. Butler Nationals range is pretty much right there along some of the holes of, of Oak Brook Golf Club. So that's a pretty cool thing that the, the PGA Tour improvised with. And being a, a member of the PGA Tour for almost 20 years now, you realize that, uh, you know, we don't have to play golf. Most people don't have to play golf if it's raining and it's soppy out, but the PGA tour schedule is <laughs> you're there for a week. We're going to get this thing in. Uh, we really don't want to cancel. We don't want to go to Monday. We're going to find a way to play it. And uh, you go out and play in some pretty, pretty dismal conditions. 
I, I, that is a neat part of Chicago history lore. I forgot Oak Brook is the host of a PGA tour event. That is that's right. That's fascinating. <laughs> Not on about. purpose, but yes. And it is a gem of a public course. I mean, that is a, a wonderful uh, track. Uh, so let's go back prior to your uh, PGA tour days, or once you joined the tour, you were a graduate of UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and I found you were a, you have a degree in mathematics. So, you know, I'm a self-proclaimed field player. So some days <laughs> it's, it's seven fields. Some days it's, it feels like 27 fields, but, uh, I, I was curious, do you consider yourself an analytical player? Uh, I do. But then when I, um, you know, when I get on the golf course, I feel like I got to just go by, by feel, I got to go realize I put all the crunch, the numbers, put all the work in ahead of time. And now I got to go ahead and and let the game come to me, basically. Um, I kind of feel like, you know, watching Bryson DeChambeau these days, that's kind of what he talks about. Like to, to the outside observer, he's like, oh man, he is way too technical. But when he gets on the golf course, he talks about execution and, and just kind of feeling his way around. Now he's he's got a lot of checkpoints, you know, with his putting, he's like, I got to take it back a certain amount of inches based on my right foot for this length of putt. But there's also feel involved there. So, um, for me, it was one of those where I, I had to find a way to make that a strength, you know, that, that I could crunch the numbers and be analytical, uh, you know, versus uh, getting caught up in my score and the numbers. How many greens have I hit so far? How many fairies have I hit? How many putts do I have? I mean, my, you see my scorecards when I was a kid. It was uh, full of all kinds of numbers and, and stat sheets that I found from my high school and college years. Uh, I was very detailed before strokes gained and, and shot link came into being uh, where you could get a lot more detailed. Uh, I did the best I could with, with what I knew I could. Um, so it's a combination really Matt, of, of the two together. And, and I, I feel like once I figured out that I had to be a little bit more trusting of, you know, my, uh, my analysis ahead of time to when feel it, that's when I played my best. And, and so many guys will will lean on their caddies for a lot of that st statistical relevance out there. Um, did you like to handle it yourself? That that prior work? Did you uh, or did did you delegate? <laughs> <laughs> no, I did most of it myself. And and looking at the generation now, where uh, let's face it, the money is even bigger than it's ever been on the PGA Tour. It's so there's, there's more ability of players to hire uh, consultants to do these things, uh, statisticians, so to speak. It used to just be we were out there. You know, a guy might have a, a trainer. Uh, of course, he's going to have a swing coach, putting coach, stuff like that. But we never really thought about having somebody crunch the numbers. But there's such value in that. I'll never forget Justin Leonard talking about uh, shot link data the first time that it was given to us in our lockers uh, maybe 10, 12 years ago. And they gave us these stats that this is what we're doing now where we've got the technology. You see the little cameras out there. You see the volunteers uh, showing how far away you are from the hole all these different times. And Justin looked at this and he goes, okay, yeah, all right. Okay. Three feet, four feet, five. Yeah, all good. Six feet, good. Seven feet. Oh my goodness. What in the world happened there? Like it just dropped significantly. And then back eight feet, nine feet. Oh, okay. Those are good. So what do you know? He, he tells the story. Great. He's like, First hole that week in the tournament, what kind of putt do you think I got on the first hole? Seven footer. You know, it's like, well, there's no way I can make this. The stats tell me awful at this. And so that's the kind of thing that I think contributed a little bit to maybe my 
poorer play uh, come 2016 and beyond, because I really started to dive into the numbers myself a little bit more and realize where my weaknesses were. And I wanted to try to improve those. And I kind of forgot a little bit about my strengths, so to speak. Now, if I had somebody else on the outside, you know, telling me, let's not look at it as a weakness. Let's look at it as an opportunity to improve. I think I would have I might still be playing a little more full time now. Um, no regrets. I'm not saying that I, you know, that's, but it's just one of the pieces of the puzzle that I didn't handle very good. Uh, whereas the kids coming out of college now, they, they've always known shot length. It's just part of the game. And so I feel like they're probably going to be a little bit more equipped to not um, overanalyze because they might have somebody else doing it for them or they've learned strategies of, of, of like I said, how to look at it as an opportunity to improve. Um, with that said, I'm a numbers guy. Like you said, a math major. I love the numbers. I love crunching those. And that's what has been fun with the, taking into broadcasting a little bit. I'm scared to dive deep into uh, the numbers, the shot link data that we have. Uh, I'm always intrigued watching Brandel Chambly on, uh, on Golf Central or live from the Masters, whatever it is. He's always got something that he dove into. And I know he did the research. Uh, he starts thinking about something. I do the same thing. I start thinking about correlations of what I'm seeing. And then I go ahead and I, I go to the stats and I see if, if what I'm seeing is backed up by those statistics. And if it's not, well, then I discard it. Uh, and, and then, and then go, go from there. But yeah, I, I certainly love the numbers and um, certainly love helping my kids with math homework more than, more than their spelling work. Let's put it that way. Did they uh, inherit father's analytical love of numbers? Uh, I think a little bit. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, you know, we got seventh grade, fifth grade and second grade. And so far, everything seems to be working pretty good. <laughs> Great. That I, I, w- I wasn't surprised to, you know, when we did our, our crack team got together doing our research for you, Mark. Uh, I wasn't surprised to see that you were a math major because uh, I, I've listened to PGA Tour Live. I think a lot of our members, you know, are subscribers and uh, yeah, you have no problem, you know, diving into the ease of shot link. Uh, it, it rolls right off your tongue. I'm like, huh? Yeah, that, that makes sense. This guy knows his numbers. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. It, it, it was some growing pains, no question about it. But once you kind of get to use, use the tool a little bit, which is this, uh, this shot link uh, database that we have, and it's in real time. Uh, once you can sift through it and realize, especially on what I'm doing, right, PJ Tour Radio, I know that the guy on the ground is going to be talking for 10 to 30 seconds about the shot. And if I have a thought about, you know, let's say the guy's over a nine foot putt or whatever, I'm going to be, I might at the moment try to, you know, pull up, Hey, how is he from seven to 10 feet this week? You know, is he perfect? Is he not made one yet? What, what is it? You know, what's the story? And, And I always want to try to use those stats to tell some sort of a story, not just spout the stats. Like, I feel like it's my job as an analyst to be more like, why, why is that important? Why, why is that number resonate with you? And, and sometimes we don't have enough time to talk about it, but if I do, I, I love bringing it up. Oh, we, I want to dive into your, your commentary career now, because it is an interesting element of, of all this for mm-hmm. me. Now that I'm a podcast host, I've been doing this for a couple of years. I'm really curious about your practice there, but we'll get to that later. That's we got to dive into your PGA tour career. Okay. Um, because this is the first time on the bag drop we've had a five-time winner on the PGA Tour. I mean, that is uh, – it's truly – it's an honor to be with you regardless, but just so cool that 
you know, you've had that level of success at the highest of, of levels. I did look up. There are only four golfers who won more often during that span of 2007 th- through uh, 2012. Can you name those four golfers? Oh, wow. Um, you know, an easy answer would be Tiger Woods. Uh, because he still played pretty, pretty awfully good golf from 07 to 09. So I'm going to say him. 17 um, victories for Tiger. Yep. Okay. Uh, Zach Johnson. Zach, ZJ. Yep. He had a. Oh boy. Well it's already done. 50%. Okay. Well yeah. Zach Johnson, Tiger Woods. Um, maybe Steve Stricker. You got it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I think I'm going to quit now. I don't even, I don't know. Um, Wisconsin, right? Yep. I'll throw in, uh, I mean, was VJ still well? I'm going to throw VJ in there too. Oh, we were so close. No, oh. uh, Phil Mickelson with 11 victories. Okay. All right. That'd have been an easy one. All right. Well, that's, that's pretty good company. I'll take it. That, that, that was, uh, you know, rarefied air Mark to, to be a part of for, for that stretch of time. When you look back on that window, what was it that, you know, not that you were playing poorly any, any means before that, mm-hmm. but what, what was it that, that gave you that longevity? I mean, for, uh, five solid years, you know, always being in the mix, what, what do you accredit a lot of that to? When I look back at it, Matt, there was a few things. There's no question about it. I, my first four years on tour, I was the guy that got there and then had to go back to Q school <laughs> back when they had Q school, uh, two years, I got my card back. The other two, I finished 126 to 150. So I was able to get some starts anyway. So I still got those four years, of a lot of experience on the PGA tour, but it was 06. I remember the Valero Texas open. I remember shooting, I think it was 79 or 80 in the third round. And that was when my caddy, Chris Jones, we were at our, our first year of 12 at that point. He'd worked with Dickie pride before and, and Dickie went and saw Dr. Bob Rotella. And after that round, he just saw me just so wound up tight. And now here in 06, we were, I think we were maybe 160th in the FedEx cup. No, it wasn't a FedEx cup yet. That's right. That was the last year of the non-FedEx Cup. So this was the money list at the time. And, and he's just like, Mark, you're just, you're, you're just trying too hard. And, uh, you know, for my caddy to have the courage to say that to me, was, it's something you need on the other side of the bag. And he goes, I really think you'd benefit from seeing Dr. Bob Rotella. And I said, all right, let's go do it. So um, uh, set it up to do that in between. I didn't have to go to first stage then. It was before second stage of Q school. Um went to see Bob Rotella and it was different than the experience I thought it would be. I thought it'd be, you know, indoors on the couch, you know, and no, we just grabbed breakfast. He talked to me mostly about college basketball. You know, he just, he, he loved talking university of Virginia where he is. And you know, I went to UNC and then he just kind of opened up to let me talk about, you know, what I thought I was struggling with. And, and he would, he applauded me for kind of knowing my problem. Cause a lot of times he said, doc, he, said, he would say guys would come to him and be like, Doc, I don't know what the issue is. Can you help me? It's really hard to help somebody in, in that case. But I knew that I was I was I struggled with it was is a, a fear when I got in the big moments of 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 looking silly. You know, if, I'm a good golfer, I know, but if I get in, I get on TV and I hit the the shot that a pro's not supposed to hit, you know, or I I choke it down the stretch. I was so worried about stuff like that. Uh he helped me develop some strategies with that. And then really ultimately what he said was, Mark, you're way too hard on yourself. Uh, you need to dwell on your good shots, you know, cause I would have, my confidence was really fragile. 
you know, it's like I I could go along, play some great golf, and then hit a couple bad shots, and I was I was toast for a couple weeks. He's like, you've got to just dwell on the good shots. He's like, I understand in in this this day and age, you get papers back from your teacher. There's a check mark next to the ones you get wrong. Okay, so you, those are highlighted. He's like, you need to you need to flip the script on that. You need to start going. What are your three favorite shots from the day, and just dwell on those at night. And so I literally had a journal back then I wrote it. I mean, now I do it not as well as I should, but I still do it. Now it's on a computer or it's in the notes section on my iPhone, but I would write that be very descriptive. Like, okay, five iron on 13 flushed it. Wind was off the right. I kind of rolled the wind to that back left pin, got it to eight feet, felt amazing. And then I would sit in bed and I would just like visualize that shot over and over. And then there'd be a great putt, a chip, whatever it would be. Lo and behold, those were the things that were in my memory instead of the bad shots that I wanted to correct. And, uh, Oh seven, then all of a sudden, uh, or I should say that, that then year I squeaked through Q school after seeing Bob Rotella got through second, no problem. Uh, final stage though, just made it on, on the number if I remember right. And then a lot of things went my way. I got in as an alternate out at the, uh, now it's called the American express. Uh, it's the, uh, Bob, it was the Bob Hope, Chrysler Classic at the time. I got in as an alternate uh, just because I happened to be there. My in-laws lived in the area and I was going to go get some practice in before the meet of my season was going to get going. Uh, I wasn't going to get in the tournament, but I was committed. I committed to every event and um, I was there. Um, so the, 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 so some caddies knew I was around. So all of a sudden guys were dropping like flies on Wednesday morning when that tournament started. It was a 90 hole tournament. And they're like, hey, Wilson's in town. I bet, you know, because there were no alternates on site. And um, that, could be a, that could be a whole podcast, <laughs> how that worked. But anyways, I got in the tournament. And because I made the cut that week, it got me enough points to get into the Honda, which was ultimately my first win in 2007. Uh, so that gave me that confidence right there, right? Like I'm, I'm using what Bob Rotel has been telling me, dwell on the good stuff. Uh, take advantage of those good breaks. And then at the Honda, uh, you know, a lot, a lot went my way. I ever having um, had a retreat for college golf fellowship guys uh, recently where they come and, and hang out at my house for a couple of days. We play golf, have some fun. And, and one of the guys, want, you know, we were talking about the Honda. I said, well, you know, I got the video. I got the, uh, it wasn't a videotape. It was a DVD player. I'm not dating myself that much. <laughs> it was a DVD. And I'm like, I'm going to put yeah, it in for you guys to watch this thing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And watch this thing. And when you watch it real time, you're like, there's no way this Mark Wilson's going to win this tournament. Uh, I was hitting horrible shots down the stretch, but I was, I was recovering miraculously. Other guys weren't finishing it off. And lo and behold, I was the, I was the guy that uh, was held the trophy. Right. Um, and then you, you think of, uh, you know, going forward, this is a really long-winded answer, Matt, but this it's it's a six-year period, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's a lot of time. You know, after that, I, I was in rarefied air because a lot of new tournaments, uh, at that time, you didn't get in the Masters as a winner, which was kind of a bummer, but I got in the World Golf Championships, and my schedule was a little bit different. Uh, 08, I had the most consistent year I've ever had. I think I only missed four cuts in 29 events. Uh, didn't win, had some chances to win. And then, uh, 09 won Mayakoba early in the season was feeling pretty good about my game, but then all of a sudden 2010, everything left. And, uh, there was the, the change, uh, of equipment with the grooves 
um, in, in the clubs. And I think that derailed me a little bit. I was, you know, trying some different irons and, and I just never got, um, I was excited because I'm a high spin player. Okay. I have a little bit more of a release through impact, a little bit more of a flip than I'd like to, but that's just who I am. I don't have that shaft lean that a Dustin Johnson has. I'm always trying to get closer to that point. Um, but in 10, I was excited. Okay. The grooves, they're going to change. They're not going to spin the golf ball as much. So I was like on cloud nine thinking this is going to be a huge advantage to me. Well, in the end, it really wasn't. It was because of this. I still was spinning my wedges a lot. I even went to playing the NXT ball for a couple of weeks, Matt. I mean, I was like, I got to try this. And, you know, that worked okay, but it was a Band-Aid, right? I short side myself on a green. I need to rely on spin on a bunker shot. I don't have it with that NXT golf ball. Um, late in 2010, I had an epiphany moment at Butler National. I was my fellow cheesehead Steve Stricker. I was watching how he would hit these wedges in the soft greens. He would he would fly and there would be no spin on it. It would just kind of land and stop. And I'm like, that's what I would get with the NXT ball. I'm like, I want this with the Pro V1. And I watched his swing. And I'm like, okay, he's he's not a whole lot of risk cock. Okay. And then I was reading this this book that my teacher that at the time, Dr. Uh, Jim Suddy, gave me about Hogan. And Hogan talked about this long flat spot through impact. And, you know, for a guy like I talk about, I flip it through impact. If I can have a longer flat spot, I'm going to lean the shaft just a little bit longer. Just if I can do it for two more inches, I'm going to be a little more consistent. And I was at Butler one day and it was, it was cold. No one was out there. This was in October. And I set my phone up on the green because I wasn't trusting the ball marks. I wanted to see what the spin was going to do. So I set my phone up on the green, propped it up, went out there and hit uh, some full wedges into the wind with a, with a 52 degree wedge. I'm telling you, I would spin these things 20 feet, 30 feet easy. Well, the ball, by doing this longer, low flat spot through impact, I limit, I hit the ball higher on the face, a little bit less spin. The ball land, I watched this on the phone. It landed, spun back a couple feet. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I got something. You know, it was, it was that moment where I'm like, I can't wait to take this to a tournament. And lo and behold, the next turn I took it to Disney. I was at the time I was, I think, 130th on the money list. I didn't have to finish 125 because I'd won in 09, but I went to Disney and I finished seventh with this new swing thought. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I think I've got something. I moved into the top 125, which got me in the players' championship. And then I I had two months of incredible golf where at 11 I won the first two turn, two of the first three tournaments I played with the same swing thought. Uh, coupled with some other things, uh, with some new short game drills I got from Greg Rose out, out at Titleist. And, uh, you know, you kind of go down that road. Then I kind of had that swing thought for the next 18 months or so and, and, and got another win out of it, got third place at the match play. So all those things kind of culminated there. And then, you know, it doesn't feel the same. I kind of go back to that swing thought every once in a while, but body, your body changes you don't rotate as well, whatever it is. And it's not the same because some people are like, let's go back to that swing thought. I'm like, I would love to, I've tried. It doesn't feel the same as it did in 11 and 12 when I really peaked. So, you know, to summarize my long-winded answer, Matt, it was, it was, you know, that way in 07, in 06 meeting Bob Rotella for the mental side of it. And then, and then the, the later part of that six years was really that swing thought that I developed one uh, cold day at Butler national. You know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's, it's prof it's profound to hear those responses, but it's also so, um, 
relatable to the rest of us because you know everybody I, the mental game comes up a lot on our podcast whether we're talking to amateurs or pros it's just you know we're, we all get in our heads more often than not you know and and so to hear you talk about that is fascinating but also the swing thought you know i i wanted to ask you what do you think there's always an expiration on swing thoughts I mean, are, are we, if, cause I think we've all been there, right? You get one that, oh my gosh, I found it. But then you start moving off. Sometimes it just stops working completely after a day or two. Other times it, it, it you know, you add more to it and you're like, oh wait, I got to back off now. Do you think there's it, it just inherently, is it, is it things like the body changing? Why do these swing thoughts have expirations? Why don't they just keep us playing good for eternity? I don't. Yeah. I mean, Ben Hogan had what he called the secret, right? You wonder, did he keep thinking of the same thing for really long? Uh, I mean, that low flat spot was pretty good for uh, almost two years, which, uh, but it does, it seems like there's an expiration. It seems like things don't feel exactly the same. There's that temptation always in, in your, in your mind of trying something different. What can I do to get to the, how, what can I do to make it better? You know, it might feel good on the range or, um, and you can take it to the course, doesn't feel good. You switch back to an old swing thought. And uh, there's, um, you know, there's a, there's a clarity, I guess, in the fact that maybe there's really no secret, right? That there's, you're always going to be uh, experimenting. I mean, I was amazed, like, for instance, uh, when I had that good run at 11, I was paired with Matt Kuchar earlier in the year. Uh, he had won the money list the year before, 2010, and he comes out in 11 with this new putting style with the, with the arm lock method. Okay. He just won the money list and now he's coming out with this new thing and there's that temptation. You know what? Now he's still with it. And many people have copied. So that was a good change. Jim Furyk, the year after the FedEx cup, uh, that he won was the same year then that Matt Kuchar started doing that. And I remember seeing Jim, you know, bending Matt's ear about it and, and trying it as well. It's like, what is he doing? You know, and he's just not scared to tinker. So I think we're all doing that. Uh, the hard part is we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know if, you know, that if the road we're taking to try something new is really the, the way to go. But, you know, I guess that's one of the intriguing parts about the game of golf. And I want to follow up on your Bob Rotella uh, conversations and how that was kind of mm -hmm. the, the first impetus for, for mm -hmm. better play and all these wins. You know, you were 2-0 and in your playoffs on tour. Um I also found you beat Dustin Johnson, Lee Westwood, and a few others who are notable match play players. You beat them. Um, is your performance in those stressful situations? I think, again, those, those were all in that same window. Were those a direct link from Dr. Rotella? Or do you think there are other things that uh, made you really good in those, those stressful moments? I believe just... Um... You know, I'm a little shorter in stature and I feel like I kind of had a little bit of that chip on my shoulder when I was a kid that I really wasn't the one that was talked about. Uh, you know, I was highly ranked junior nationally when I'd get to like Wisconsin junior tournaments. And it was I look back at that kid. And I'm like, wow, I think I was pretty arrogant, you know, and I hope I didn't come off that way. I just I wanted people to know how good I was. And, you know, maybe that's a character flaw. But at the same time, when you're in a match play situation or one-on-one -on -one late in a tournament or a playoff. It's like, it's just, it's just the two of us and I want to win, you know? And, and I think the match play tournament I really enjoyed so much was uh, I only got a chance to play in it twice. And um, you know, that 2011 was a cool, I was the leader in the FedEx cup after two wins. I come in, of course that tournament was not on my schedule starting here, but because of the start, I 
uh, was in there and got paired up against Dustin Johnson right off the bat. And so I took that as, as like, Hey, this, I want to, I want to, you know, beat this up and comer. He wasn't the Dustin Johnson. Now the FedEx cup champion masters champion, but he still was pretty, pretty darn good. And, and kind of heralded as one of the best, uh, you know, young players. And uh, I, I, when I look back at that kid, who was who me being the kid is like, wow, I'm so proud that I still had the drive. Cause I feel like there could have been a little bit of a letdown, like, Oh, it's cool to be here kind of thing. And uh, that same year, I remember losing to Bubba Watson the next round. I didn't really show up. I think I lost five and four or something like that. And not one to show too much emotion, but when I got out off the golf course there, the courtesy car was there waiting and thankfully there was no one, one in it yet. I got in the car first, closed the door and I, I hit that passenger seat as hard as I could so many times. I was like in a boxing match with it. And I kind of sat back like, wow, I'm, I'm glad that I cared. Cause it'd been easy to be like, Hey, it's been a good run, Mark. Nice to, you hadn't been home for eight weeks. Let's go home and, and, and just reflect on a little bit. So no, I wanted to go as high as I could. So uh, I think it was, it was part of that, that, you know, mano a mano. That's kind of when I really, uh, really thrived the best. I guess I wish there were more match play tournaments on the PGA tour. I, as a fan, I do too. I really enjoyed uh, last week at Austin and it's just, it, you don't get to see, you know, our favorite, our favorite players in those moments uh, so often, right. Putts to win holes. And it, it makes golf feel mm-hmm. a lot more like these other sports that, you know, us Midwesterns grow up watching. Right. And it is fun. And thankfully we've got the Ryder cup coming up and uh, that's going to be so fun uh, to watch at whistling straights with my fellow cheese head, Steve Stricker leading the charge. So there's another one we got to look forward to is the masters. You mentioned Dustin Johnson, uh, the masters champ. You got to play in the masters a few times. Um, you know, with the tournament going on this week, as we're sitting here chatting, what are some of your memories about playing in the masters? Yeah. The first one that comes to mind is that I was fortunate enough the second time I played to make a hole in one in the par three tournament. And that was super special. The fourth hole ESPN got it. So I've got it documented. My cousin, David Wilson was caddying for me. Uh, my wife put a lot of time into making bibs up for my kids. Lane, my oldest was four at the time. So he was right there alongside me. Uh, and then Cole, who was, we were going to celebrate his first birthday uh, there that week at the tournament. He was uh, in the baby yarn with my wife. Unfortunately, my wife missed it because she had to change his diaper at the moment that I made the ace. She heard this big roar and she's like, what happened? Uh, you know, people are like, oh, that Wilson guy made a hole in one. She's like, really? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> so she she missed it but um uh so that was that was truly uh remarkable that 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 happened uh, that I was able to 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 make uh make the hole in one um I think back to first time I played in, in 11 I you know experience really seems like a, a big part of the masters course knowledge it's a tough timer to come in and really play that well I think that's why you see guys like Fred Couples play well even in their 60s Bernard Longer um, but I was one under through seven in the first round. And I was like, ah, oh, this is a piece of cake. And lo and behold, I had about 12 footer up the hill on number eight for birdie. And, and I ran it about three feet by missed the three footer. That one went three feet by I missed that one four putt later, double bogey. And lo and behold, an hour later, I'm standing on the 12th tee. I'm five over for the day. You know, it was like, it, it just spiraled really quick and, and, and made me respect the place really quickly there when, when I thought I had it, had it dialed in and it just, it just kind of like, <laughs> it gave me a sucker punch, no question about it. But those are, those are a couple of memories that come out there. And then just 
the, the family and friends that all wanted to be a part of it. Um, you know, you're, they, they give you eight passes, if I remember correctly, for the week. And my dad was like the, the guy that handed them all out, right? Like, uh, it's like, okay, we want, you know, these two are going to come on Tuesday and these, these four are going to come on Wednesday. We're going to kind of divvy all this out. And my dad gets to go every day. My wife gets to go every day, that kind of thing. And we had a lot of fun with, with, uh, with, with all that. And the people that came in, because I felt like it was a culmination of a dream, right? I mean, it's cliche to say, but when you're a kid, when I was a kid, almost everybody is, is hitting putts to win the masters. And I was uh, no different than the other kids. And here I was there and have a putt to win the masters, but I was at least competing there and to have so many different people, different walks of life, family members, college teammates, uh, college friends, high school friends, uh, childhood friends come and, and share that with me. Uh, something I always remember. I just wish I'd played a little bit better. Never made the cut there. That, you know, that, that irks me a little bit, but uh, at least I got there a couple of times. And, and I've heard you on another interview uh, reference it as a fantasy land or a dream as, as you say, and anyone that's, you know, won the lottery and been able to walk in those ropes, I think we describe it the same way. It doesn't feel real. You know, when you step back out onto Washington Avenue, it's like the real world. But when you're in there, you're like, what is this place? You know, this is a fantasy world. Um, are there any things about Augusta National that maybe most of our listeners might not know? Uh, I mean, I guess driving down Magnolia Lane is, is something that uh, they require you to do. Uh, you can come in the gate and then turn right would be a lot more, um, more direct route to get to the parking area for the players now that they've built the new driving range. But you know what, that's kind of cool that they force us to do it because you know what, it's, it's awfully cool to do every time. So you kind of go down Magnolia lane and then you basically make almost a U-turn back to where you're going to park. And you're like, this is inefficient, but you know what, some things in life can be inefficient. I mean, my wife jokes with me about how efficient I need to be with things, but there's times when it's nice to go ahead and, and, and soak it in. So that's something that, that you're basically required to do. And, uh, uh but it is massive. It, the, the year that I was there, the first year, there was a big storm the, uh, the first night and it, it knocked down one of the Magnolias on Magnolia lane. But by the next day, you wouldn't, would not have known it was gone the way that they, they got it out there quick and then they manicured that area so that it just, it didn't look like anything was missing. It was, was pretty amazing. The grass there though, when you walk on it and you've been there, Matt, it's like, they've got some special fertilizer or whatever it is. Cause there's some love that's put into that. It's unlike any other grass that I've, that I've, um, that I've ever seen. I will say one thing I was surprised at, uh, is that it's not cut as low as I thought. Um, you know, like a wedge shot on 15 over that water off the down slope. I thought it was going to be in that like quarter inch fairway that was going to be really intimidating. Some of that firm bent grass that you might experience in the Midwest that you're thinking all chunk all day long, but it was actually a lot longer, uh, not, I mean, not crazy long, but a lot longer and, and more full than I was expecting. So, uh, that was a pleasant surprise for me. Um, it's still, you know, the magnitude of the situation certainly comes into a lot of those shots. We'll see the guys hitting this week. I'm not saying they're easy, but uh, they're, they're made a little bit easier by the way that they've, they've got this golf course groomed just immaculately. So you're still, you know, playing your PJ tour events, but less frequently. And I'm curious, is there that life on the road and, and tournament to 29 weeks, like you were saying, is, what do you miss most about that? 
I love the heat of the battle and, and just being in competition. And I think what drove me away to kind of maybe do something else for a little bit before I turned 50 and get to compete again on the PGA Tour Champions was that I wasn't seeing like, good results, right? I was just missing cut after cut. And even if I made a cut, I'd finish 60th or something. It's like, part of me was like, why am I doing this? And, and now that I look back on it, um, I, 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 that's what I miss. I miss even the, the, the low moments, right? It's like, I think you have to be able to embrace those low moments and be willing for them to happen to really be out there. And at the time I wasn't, I wasn't willing to embrace another missed cut or, or another slap in the face. Um, or like in Reno, I made the cut and then I realized I was using a non-conforming green book. So even when I had some success, something fluky, weird, or some dumb idiotic thing that I did, uh, in my preparation, you know, knock me down a level again. So, um, I'll be ready again when, uh, you know, now that I have an opportunity to tee it up again, whenever it is to, like I said, embrace the, um, the missed putt, the, the poor shot and just be thankful for the competition again, because there's, there's something in your stomach and your heart that, that I can't replicate with anything else really, um, in golf, uh, but PGA tour competition. So, uh, so I really miss that the most. Uh, of anything, just that, uh, the, you know, the, the bell's going to ring. You've got a tee time. You've got to tee off. You can't continue preparing, you know, where, how's your game at that moment and, and just seeing how it is and, and, and going with it. Uh, there you bring up green books and, um, you know, knowing you had this analytical background to you, you know, study of math, um, and beyond the green books, I guess I, I would maybe I'll ask this more holistically because, you know, there's this, there's the debate in golf and it's, it's everywhere, right? You turn on golf channel, you open golf digest, any, any article really seems to be, and people are interested in talking about it. So we bring it up quite often on this pod, but I, I wanted to get, you know, PGA tour player of your caliber. I want to get your opinion on the distance debate. If you have a side to it, um, where do you sit on this? Well, I just know that I was doing PGA Tour radio when Bryson DeChambeau took it on number six and how exciting that was. And you start dialing it back somehow, then you don't get a mo- you don't get the same kind of moment on six at Bay Hill. There might be other moments somewhere else, but uh, oh boy, that, that's a, a really tough one. I don't want it to be very expensive. I don't want it to mean that, that golfers have to like get all new clubs. So I think the, the, the best solution to me would be something with the ball. I don't want to go as far back as a Cayman ball. If you play with a Cayman ball, Matt, no. <laughs> oh man, it's like it's like opposite. It was built for the Cayman Islands because they didn't have much enough room for golf courses, but they wanted to build golf courses. So the dimples come out. It's it's the opposite. They're bumpy, and the ball goes way shorter. There's a golf course called Missing Links. I don't think it still exists in Mequon, Wisconsin, but uh, I'd go play there. And um, you know, a driver, it goes like. 50, 60% of your total, but you can just imagine this golf ball, which is lighter and not as just not as dense. The wind just wore it out. Right. I mean, you think balls are going to be moving, moving on the green now. I mean, they'll be moving really bad with a Cayman ball. So I don't want to go that far back, but I think that could be the the solution somewhat, but here's, here's my uh, reservation with all this is the club manufacturers have a lot of money, a lot of, uh, R and D. And I will say that that whole thing with the grooves back in 2010, it was a blip on the radar. We thought all this is going to change the way a Dustin Johnson attacks a golf course. 
uh, well, look what Bryson's doing now. It, it just hit up as far as I, he can and figure it out from there. Um, that, that was a blip on the radar. So I feel like somehow the manufacturers would find a way to, to still allow us to hit it, hit it further, you know, as, as far as we do. Now, if they start going into the clubs and making some specifications there, like I said, I think that's going to get really expensive to everybody. And I, I don't want to have all the clubs that, that everyone has in their bag now be, you know, be null and void and, and Ill, deemed illegal, so to speak. Um, but there's something to be said about a smaller sweet spot. I do some virtual golf clinics and in, in my golf studio, and I love pulling out a Louisville slugger uh, replica persimmon head hickory shaft driver and hitting that after I hit my ping G425. And, you know, I mean, I carry it 260 on a, on average, basically 270 on a good day. Um, but this hickory shafted club, I mean, I got to hit that thing in the middle. I can hit that thing just over 200. If I catch a little on the heel, uh, and if I hit a good one, it feels amazing. You know, it's flying 240. So there's a big difference there. So if, you know, they, the manufacturer, if they're going to go that way, they've got to somehow narrow that sweet spot. Um, and, and make them make them if you miss the sweet spot, make the misses really dramatic uh, to go ahead and say, hey, Bryson, yeah, go ahead. If you want to swing 195 miles an hour uh, or excuse me, if you want to swing like 135 miles an hour, uh, go ahead. But you better hit that sweet spot. Otherwise, you're probably reteeing it. So uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens. But uh, I know the USGA has done a lot of research over the last couple of years. And and uh, I just know I was. I was like a little kid before Christmas when Bryson was grabbing driver on number six. I don't want that to go away. It was exciting. Yeah. It's, it's hard, to, <laughs> hard to turn away from that's for sure. In like the WWF sense for me, you know, like, <laughs> yes. like, you just couldn't believe what I was watching. Um, the, you, you kind of came from a generation and we're roughly the same age, but you grew up in the eighties and nineties. You probably did have a persimmon in your bag as a kid. Is that right? Yeah, I remember uh, seventh grade, I think I remember buying uh, a seven wood from the pro shop. And that was that finally put me into all metal woods in the back. So, yeah, I definitely had some persimmons to start to start out. And do you think the smaller club head, if that were to be an outcome, which I don't think it is, but I'm curious, smaller heads uh, the, the go back to the tiny steel ones or all the way to persimmons. Do they who do they favor? Like what type of player do you think that club, because you're still swinging them in your simulator, which is awesome. But what, who, what do you think that, what type of player does that favor? Well, it, it definitely favors the, the, the more, the, the guys who hit it the best, right. In terms of the most, the guys are most consistent. Uh, you know, Bryson talks about repeating motion, right. That's really the quest. How often can he wants to have this repeating motion? So the guys that could do that more. So I think that the best ball strikers now you're also going to see probably be the best, but there's going to be a few that might fall off. You know, uh, you know, I want to throw a guy under the bus, but like a, maybe a Patrick Reed might not be as good. I mean, he's got an incredible short game and he's going to find a way, but you know, um, the golf swing, maybe not as that's not his kind of strength. And so he'd probably have to put some more effort into that. But uh, you know, we'd see those, the guys like a Colin Morikawa, uh, certainly probably stay at, at, at the top. The guys that are a little bit more consistent ball striking Patrick Cantley comes to mind. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I see, where I see that issue. 
And then last two related item for you, the uh, green reading books, which I'd love mm-hmm. to, that sounds like a whole nother pod of your outcome <laughs> out in Reno. Um, uh, what, what's your opinion on those? I know there's a lot of folks that are, are pushing for them to be removed as well. Well, they made a baby step back and that's what got me disqualified that I used a book that was conforming a few years before, but then they, they narrowed it down to the scale has to be three eighths inch to five yards at the most in terms of what the, you know, you see in the, in the, the yards, but what's really weird about that is you can actually use the, the full page large scale out in the fairway, but you can't use it up on the green. So you can use it to help you with approach shots. It's just, a, it's a weird rule. So, uh, yeah, I, there's, I, I hate to be that old ornery guy with this one, but I kind of, I was a guy that tried them because I felt like I might be missing out on something. Uh, you know, hey, all these other guys are doing this and they're swearing by them. I got to try this and see if that, this can help me. And lo and behold, there were times it did. You know, like when I when I used it in Reno, I only used it a couple of times around, but that was enough to get me disqualified. And, um, you know, it was, it's, it's those times when the putt looks really flat and you're like, I know there's some movement here. Am I am I on this side of the ridge or that side of the ridge? And, and it can help. But you also have to be very diligent about you know, where do you put in the, in that book, where do you put the, the whole location and where's your ball at the time? Um, so I'm going to be the ordinary guy and say, I'd love to see them eliminate those. Cause there's just something weird about a guy getting up on the green, marking his ball and then walking back the camera's still on him. And he pulls out this big book in it from his back pocket and he starts looking at it. I guess I just don't really like that. I'd rather have it go back to, uh, you know, the, the way it was back in the day, you know, in, in terms of reading, the greens, what you see, what you feel. I mean, there's still like aim point, aim point express. You can do that without a book. I mean, you do that when the guys are standing there with their feet, trying to feel the break. Uh, because what I've been taught by different putting instructors, you know, your, your mind, your eyes can play tricks on you, but what you feel in your feet does not play tricks on you. I never got really good at that, but guys can still read it that way. You could still see guys, you know, Adam Scott holding up two fingers. Cause he's, he feels like it's a 2% grade for that putt. Um, I'd love to get uh, paper and ink out of uh, reading greens if possible. I, I, I'm, I, I'm in agreement with you just because I think there's so much great science that has in, enhanced the game for viewers and, and players. Um, but it's fun to have a little bit of the art. And I think we got to defend a little bit of the art and, mm-hmm. uh, and bring back a little bit of it. So I'm, I'm with you on that. On that Thanks, Matt. Game. All right. You're <laughs> my corner. Um, so, you know, non, non tour golf, and it's exciting to hear that you're going to be going back in and, you know, putting the, getting the competitive juices going again on the champions tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're out there with mere mortals like us, you know, and you're playing in the <laughs> West, the West suburbs where we got a ton of, of Chicago members, what, what are some things that you look forward to the most? Oh boy. Um, well, yeah, I, I think of playing with, you know, our fellow buddy, Jackson Kemper, unfortunately hits it further than I do. Um, <laughs> He's but, juicing. Uh, but I'm telling you, he's juicing. He is, he's juicing. You think so? <laughs> it's pretty impressive. Whatever he's doing, it's uh, it, it's good stuff. I wish I had that speed, but uh, no, I I just look forward to the cool thing about golf is that there's the handicap system, right? So I can go out to River Forest Country Club, or I can go play with with you or with Jackson Kemper, and and we can we can have a very competitive game based on what our what our potential score, or what our likely score is going to be. And I just love that part of it. I've played at the President's Cup at River Forest Country Club the last two seasons, which is a handicap match play event. 
and I get to play against the guys that are six handicaps or less. We got kind of our bracket and I just love going out there and, and I get those, I get those similar juices flowing that I get when I tee it up in a PGA tour event, maybe not quite as much, but still there, you know, it's like mono a mono once again, and it, it's a fair fight against uh, you know, a five handicap. I'm given 10 shots. Usually I'm like around that plus four to plus six range, but I just love the, the, the fact that I can compete against somebody else and feel like it's a fair fight. Uh, I love going out and playing, uh, courses around the area. Matter of fact, Jackson, I played Mount prospect golf club, a few, uh, I guess during the pandemic. And, uh, I just fell in love with that. They did put some money into it. It's such a fun course with the way the greens are. Uh, my wife, <laughs> she has a hard time when we go to like, uh, a lesser known golf course or whatever. And, and, and I, my line usually to her is, wow, this place has some serious potential, <laughs> you know, like it's good, but I understand the budget, the budget restraints make, they, they can turn a, a Butler national into something that's really not uh, well sought after really because of the budget. So I get it, but I, I always tell her this place has some potential. Look at this whole, the way it's designed. And, and um, so I, I just love uh, playing just some random courses in, in the Chicago area. Uh, you know, just, just having fun. I mean, it's once again, it's a stick and a ball. And if you put a four and a quarter inch cup out there somewhere, I'd love to try and, and get it into it. You listed some of our society's favorites. So it's, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for you out there next time. How many, All right. so what number are you playing off right now, Mark? I haven't looked recently, but it, I, I think it's a plus five at river forest right now. So when you're teed it up against a six, you're giving 11 shots to that guy or that gal. And, uh, that's got to feel a little different than, you know, PJ tour, <laughs> head to toe to toe, but that's, that's neat to hear. You still get the juices. It is. Yeah. And it's one of those two where it's such a challenge to not focus on the score, right? Because let's face it, a, a six handicap, very good golfer, but he's going to do some things that I'm not going to see Tiger Woods do when I'm playing against him, right? He's, he's going to hit a great drive and, and a nice shot on the green. He's going to inexplicably three putt from 20 feet or vice versa. He might, you know, hit it in the trees and hit an incredible recovery. And, and I wasn't expecting that. So uh, it kind of is reminding me to just stay in every hole and, and um, whether he's getting a stroke or not on a hole, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that, you know, that's the hole I'm going to lose for sure. Um, you never know what could happen. So you've made that transition to TV. Um, mm -hmm. And like I said, we got a, a whole bunch of members that are always chatting each other while we're watching PGA Tour live, and most of us should probably be doing work. Um, but uh, how has that? How are you able to break into the golf commentary world first? I mean, we—it's such an interesting dynamic in there, mm -hmm. and, and there's few players that make the transition well, and you've done that. So, how, how are you able to break into that? Well, first of all, I appreciate the viewership. No question about it. I hope that we are slowing down productivity around the country with people <laughs> tuning into PJ tour live. No, I don't hope that that we're doing that, but I think it's a nice thing to have uh, on in the background. Right. Um, it was one of those where 2008, I think it was 2018 where kind of going around, going along the road there and, and still was, that was my last year I played. I used a one-time corn ferry tour exemption to, to try to get my, uh, you know, see if I could get my card back that way. And then I played PJ tour events when I got into them and got to the very last event. Uh, it was right before Reno. We were going to go out there as a family. And, and I just looked at my wife and I said, you know what? I think I want to pursue something else. 
And we talked about it a little bit more and, and said, you know, I think Reno is going to be my last event as a full-time member. Like this is my full-time gig and I'm going to try to go into commentary. So I called up uh, the PGA tour, uh, Greg Hoppy at the PGA tour. He's, he's the head of the, the PGA tour entertainment kind of area. So he's got PGA tour live and PGA tour radio kind of under him. And I said, Hey, Greg, I'm, I'm ready to do something. I don't know what it is, but I'd, I'd love to have a spot on your team. Uh, so keep me in mind. You know, and then I called up Molly Solomon at the golf channel and said, I I'm ready to do this. I want you to know that I'm, I'm all in, I'm, I'm not going to be just half in, like I know some guys are. So uh, give me a shot, you know, and, and, um, and Greg said, you bet. We've got kind of our schedule sort of almost all figured out for 2019, but we're going to give you one or two here or there and see how you do uh, on PGA Tour Live. Uh, Molly Solomon said, hey, I will have you come down and do Golf Central a couple of times. So, so I did that for golf, for the Golf Channel, and, and that was a great experience. Uh, but, I, you know, looking back, I, didn't, I needed to treat it like I'd already arrived. You know, and I went there with some baggy suits and uh, and I was more into the I was more into the content, you know, like I'm going to give them some good stuff. I feel like I gave them some some good insights. But at the same time, I was a bit of a deer in headlights with the with the camera. And uh, let's face it, I didn't look great on camera because my suits were too big. You know, it was one of those things. But um, so I went to Nordstrom soon after that, made sure I had a couple suits that, that fit right. So that the next time I had that opportunity, I was going to be there. Uh, but then I, I did the Waste Management Phoenix Open for PGA Tour Live. Uh, and right like the first day, I, I didn't know how I was doing, but the producer came up to me, uh, Chris Sinclair, and said, hey, what are you doing the week of the players? And I'm like, oh, um, I'm not in the field, obviously. I, <laughs> it's like, what do you have in mind? He's like, well, we'd love to have you work with us. And then that first year, I ended up getting nine PGA Tour Live events, which is a pretty full year for PGA Tour Live. And you, an avid listener, or watcher, I should say. And uh, for those that don't, you get a lot of different voices on there. They don't, they like to mix up the crews. And so for me to get nine was huge. I, I think I did eight or nine the, the, the following year and then added in radio. Uh, they called me up, uh, you know, they like my work on, on live and there was a spot opening up. They said, we'd love for you to be an analyst. So now I've got a pretty steady gig with, with the two and, and I, I really enjoy, enjoy the work. And now I have a little bit more of a set schedule come December. They say, Hey, these are the weeks that we'd like you to work. Do they work for you? And, and we go from there versus that first year, it was more, I had to be ready. You know, I had to tell my wife, say, Hey, it's kind of like the old days when I was playing out of the 126 to 150 category, and you might get a call on a Wednesday that you're going to get into this tournament and you got to go. Um, it wasn't that short notice, but it was one of those where I couldn't necessarily plan. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm at. And I've had a few opportunities come my way. I'm going to do the PGA championship for ESPN. I'll be one of the analysts there doing a few holes uh, for that. So things are spiraling in the right direction, it appears to be. Is there a difference? Because you mentioned being on the radio as well. Um, what's the key difference knowing that you're mm -hmm. on on you know the visual of PJ Tour Live versus just your voice guiding us on on PJ Tour Radio? That's why I feel like for me, radio is, is a lot easier because um, you've got, um, first of all, you got more time usually uh, to really paint the picture. And you do, that's, that's the harder part of radio is that you got to remember that, okay, I'm watching it on monitor or I'm on site. I'm seeing it. So remember that the people that are driving in their car or listening, they can't see it. So it's way better to try to, uh, to get to those senses as they're, as they're watching and, and, and talk about 
whether it's the color of his shirt or, uh, you know, the, the glare from the sun or what, what tree he's aiming at, what does it look like? Whereas, uh, you know, on PGA Tour Live, you got to be a little bit more creative with things because they can see a lot in, in front of them. And, and so, yeah, they're, they're two different mediums. And I'm really glad I can do both because I think it's really making me better at, at both. I, I might be picking up the radio this year because my, you know, as a new father, I, my, my golf days are dwindling and I used <laughs> to try to squeeze in my golf days other, other times and then watch golf for, you know, I love PJ tour Sundays. I love watching Saturday moving day. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just a fan and I just, but, but this year I'm telling myself, I am not going to watch golf at the expense of playing golf. So if I'm out there, <laughs> right. maybe I, maybe I go the radio route and I'll just have, you know, Mr. Wilson in my ear. Well, or at least you then have the radio, you know, to and from the golf course to, to listen to the, the coverage, see what's going on. It's like this, this week, it was a great example. We were, we were going to grandma's for Easter and Jordan Spieth uh, had just birdied 17 to take a two shot lead in 18. We had to get in the car to go to grandma's and we got to listen to our old four C Mark Carnival and the boys bring it home. And it was really cool to listen to them paint the picture. Cause now I, I know, you know, I learned from them. I learned from my colleagues and what they're doing and take things from them. And, and, and they did a great job, uh, you know, walking Jordan Spieth to his first career victory in, in four years. So I recommend, uh, you know, Sirius XM channel 92. Uh, it, it's, it's a good time. I enjoy doing it. I think it's a good listen as you're getting from A to B. All right, Mark, I got one last thing for you before we let you go. This is uh, something we're doing on the, the bag drop all season long. It's called the 19th soul. It's 18 questions that I have derived from a uh, French novelist, Marcel Proust. Uh, He did this 35 questionnaire that uh, got to the truest nature of an individual. What we're we're not trying to do that. What we're trying to do is get to the soul (laughs) of the golfer. Okay. Okay. I love it. So these are intended to be quick answer questions. You could, you could dwell all day on every single one of these, but you know, we, we won't hold you to any of them. Uh, there's no grade at the end of this. So <laughs> just, just let them rip. Are, are you ready? I, I think I'm ready. Let's bring it on, Matt. All right. Number one, first T. When were you the happiest as a golfer? I would say when I won the um, high, Wisconsin high school tournament as a freshman. And our team won too. It was, it was like a dual thing. I was a shy freshman and uh, winning that kind of put me on the map and eased myself into my freshman year in high school. Number two, what's the scariest shot in golf? I would say fairway bunker shot over water. Number three, what is your go-to order at the halfway house? Oh boy, man. Uh, I'd bag. almost rather get rid of the halfway house. Cause I think it slows play down and I'm all about the golf. I probably just lost a lot of fans at that moment. Um, but, uh, no, mine was always a chicken sandwich that I actually made myself. I went to the grocery store at every tournament chicken sandwich that I bring with me. Um, so, and, and a banana, I'd grab a banana at the turn usually. Number four, what is the trait you most deplore in your own golf game? <laughs> um, I would say that I tend to flip it a little bit early at impact. Number five, what is the quality you most look for in a playing partner? 
one who talks the right amount in terms of quantity, not too much and not too little. Number six, what is the trait you most deplore in your playing partners? Um, I would say slow ply. Very common answer. Uh, <laughs> number seven, what words or phrases do you most overuse on the golf course? Um, hmm. Most overused phrases on the golf course. Um, probably that'll work. Um, um, might that's want to hit good. another one. <laughs> I like that. I like that'll work from a, that. That's a good one. More of us need that one. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, might hit, might hit another one. You might want to hit another one. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. No, number eight, what golfing talent would you most want to have? Driving it long. Number nine, what is your most treasured golf possession? Oh, boy. Um, <clears throat> you know what? I, I'm sure I have a lot, but the one that just came to mind was a trophy that I won when I was uh, 14 years old. won an AJJ event, and back then they gave us this uh, – it was a – it was like a long thing where it had the evolution of the golf ball. It showed the gutta percha all the way or the feathery gutta percha all the way to the modern day golf ball. And then on top, it was a little plaque that said, you know, the tournament you won. So that was the first thing that came to mind and, and always something that uh, warms my heart every time I see it. That is a cool trophy idea. That's awesome. Which just reminded me the Cayman ball, you mentioned quick interjection, the Cayman ball you mentioned, my father came back from the Cayman Islands with that ball. And I remember hitting it in the backyard and thinking, well, this thing stinks. <laughs> what is this? I had no idea that's what it was. Exactly. There you go. The Cayman ball was not on, is not on the trophy, by the way. Okay. Oh, God. Shucks. They, they missed one. Uh, number 10, making the turn. What's the one thing in your golf bag you should throw out? Um... One thing in my golf bag I should throw out. Pretty efficient uh, in that. My caddies are always impressed that I have everything in there that we need. Um, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and say at this point, because I don't have to play when the weather's bad, I'm going to say umbrella. It's a good one. Your caddy will appreciate <laughs> it. 11, uh, what is your favorite occupation at the golf course? favorite occupation i would have to say the even though you got to deal with the the clientele telling you that maybe it's you know the, the, all the bad stuff i would have to say that the superintendent I, I i can't imagine how cool it's got to be to be out there putting your life's work into this 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 painting basically and uh, and seeing uh you know letting mother nature do its thing and grow grass and cut it right and yeah, I know you're going to have some critics, but that's got to be a pretty satisfying job. Number 12, have you ever asked another golfer for their autograph? Oh, yeah, many. <laughs> yes. Uh, I put a golf bag in uh, numerous locker rooms or a flag for, for charity reasons usually. But one of the golf bags I put in, uh, it was originally for a charity idea, but then I ended up just keeping it because it was a 2004 bag with all kinds of signatures on it. And then my dad walked around years on tour with the rain cover that goes on top of the ping bag. 
and he got Tiger's autograph, VJ's, Jack's, all the big names, because that was a lot easier to haul around than, than a big bag. So yeah, I've I've definitely asked them, but it's usually for charity purposes. Um, but uh, I will say I saw Trevor Owen just posted the Masters uh, dinner, um, a menu or whatever with all the signatures on. I was pretty envious. <laughs> yeah, and I saw it's always so cool to as a fan of the game to you know I saw Jordan Spieth walking in with his stuff that he wanted signed last night, and um, we're all fans, I guess, in the end. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Number number thirteen. What historical golf figure do you most relate to? I would have to say Ben Hogan, and the you know same stature. I always uh, really focused on him. About he's five eight. I'm five seven, 150 pounds, and I was amazed how he was able to generate all that power with that and and overcoming adversity and all that kind of thing. I, I really I identify with him the most. Number 14, do you have a greatest golf regret? Oh, boy. I, uh, you know, the right answer is to say no. But, uh, you know, I think if anything, back in 2013, I started thinking that I was headed down the wrong path. and I needed to see a new teacher. And I, I left Jim study to go in the end, see about three or four different guys in the next three or four years. And, um, you know, if I could have that back, uh, once again, everything, all the choices we make, I, I take them as full responsibility and, and I know I can come out on the other side, um, of them. But, uh, if I could go back, I think I might've just stuck with Jim Suddy and, and, and continue to work with him. Number 15, your, it, what is your favorite hole in golf? You've listed some good ones already on this. Podcast, what, <laughs> what is your favorite hole in all of golf? Favorite holes. I got to go through the Rolodex in my head of all the holes, right? Um, boy. I'm going to ask you about your least favorite too. So if you're, if yeah, you're, but if you're favorite hole in golf, I mean, I'm going back to childhood and I'm, I'm trying to think about, you know, some of that stuff, but you know, Lo and behold, when you, you know, when I think back to kind of my uh, career, I feel like when you have those defining moments, um, you know, that's kind of where, where they're at. So, I mean, I'd have to probably, I'd probably have to choose the 18th hole at uh, PGA West stadium course. Cause that's where I first got my PGA tour card. And I, I think about the trepidation I stood on that tee of not hitting it left so I could be on the PGA tour the next year. And, and that'll be a, a, a place that I always remember. So I'd love to, Love to go play 18 at the stadium. And thankfully I got one more crack at it at the, at the uh, American express next year. And I always love getting there. I think our, uh, our friend Jackson Kemper sent us a picture of you down in that uh, trench. Uh, yeah, that was 16. Yeah. I don't want to be in that only practice days just in case, but yes. <laughs> right. Just in case. <laughs> only uh, Is there a least favorite hole? You know what? I think the one that comes to mind, and this is just so random, but the, the hole that pops in my mind is Beth Page Black number five. It's this par four that just was the epitome of like, I need to hit the ball farther and higher. <laughs> like I'd be hitting, I remember playing the Barclays there and I hit a good drive left with a, with a, um, I think I had a five with, no, I think I used a three hybrid, you know, which I can hit a little bit higher. The green's only 22 deep, sits up. And I flew a hybrid high and soft on the front of the green and went in the back bunker. And I'm like, what, what am I supposed to do here? 
I guess I need to hit it 50 yards further so I can have an eight iron on the green instead of a three hybrid. Um, so that is very random. I guarantee no one else is going to say that hole, but that's, that's mine. That's the first, first we've heard it, <laughs> uh, rounding out number 17. Uh, I don't know if, do you, do you listen to music on the golf course? I don't really know, but if, you know, if someone in my foursome wants to do it, I definitely welcome it. This is a very split, split category on this one. But if you, uh, if you had one song that you had to listen to for the rest of your life oh boy. on the golf course, while practicing, driving to the golf course, where have you, what, what would that one song be? You know what? I, I mean, I'm so bad at naming songs too. Like if I hear like, Oh, I like that song, but I, I'm not very good at naming. Um, but I did put in, uh, and what's going to butcher it, but it was like, it's what is it that is it for Elise or whatever? It's like Mozart or Beethoven or something. And, you know, I'll put that on every once in a while. I'm practicing, try, you know, trying to think that, Hey, what I'm doing right now is the equivalent of, you know, an incredible composer, like, uh, and what's going to be butchering who did it. It was Mozart or, or Beethoven, one of the two, but like what they did to put into that, it's like what I'm doing, I'm I, trying to craft my golf swing and, and work it. It, it. It's like, like a composer coming up with a, a famous piece. So I'd, I'd pick that whichever one it was. It's <laughs> a good answer. Uh, and finally, I don't know if you have a motto, but if you do have a motto or if you had a motto, what would it be? Oh boy. Yeah. Um, I think I'd probably say, uh, you know, I'm going to steal this from my dad. He's, he gave us a bunch of different mottos. I think he, he said one was, you know, don't sweat the small stuff, but really the one that stuck out in my mind was if you're going to do something, do it right. You know, and it was like, Hey, if, if I'm going to tackle something, whether it's taking out the garbage, whether it's, you know, building, um, a piece of furniture, you know, something a little more uh, uh, complicated, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to go ahead and, and go in with a good attitude and I'm going to make it as good as I possibly can make it. Well, Mark Wilson, that is a great message to leave us with. You've clearly <laughs> done that for uh, family, for, for your golf career. And, and now in the, in the commentary world, we're all looking forward to, to listening, to watching um, and really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate what you're doing too, to grow the game of golf. I think it's awesome what you're doing. You know, with new club and and with the with the podcast, I was just honored to be on and, and look forward to playing some golf together. Yes, let's do it. Let's get out there. I'll give you. Uh, I think I only have to give you four right now. So, or I'm sorry, you have to give me four. I've never. Right, said oh, that. wow. I really. I rarely get to say that, Mark. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to that match. Uh, and, and thanks, thanks for everything. Hey, thanks, Matt. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we're at New Club Golf. This episode was produced by Mark Caldwell with research assistance by Jim Sitar. The backdrop is supported by members of New Club Golf Society and our official partners. The Evan Scholars Invitational is our official partner of this year's Hangout at Canal Shores. The future stars of the PGA Tour return to the Glen Club on May 27th through 30th for the Corn Ferry Tour's Evan Scholars Invitational. General admission to this event is complimentary this year, courtesy Serve Pro of Glenview.
Fans looking for an upgraded experience can purchase tickets to The Hangar, a premium spectator venue with food and drink included. For more information and to secure your tickets, visit esinvitational.com, and I will see you at the Evan Scholars Invitational.